where they've left with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I've not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. The Gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. There is only one thing that I can say for certain about every single one of us in this room today and about every single person that I meet, and it's that one day, every one of us is going to die. And because that is the great unchangeable reality of each of our lives, it matters profoundly whether this is simply a mythic story from the ancient Middle East that people made up in order somehow to try to face their mortality more bravely or whether it's true. We know that these first disciples who became apostles, sent ones, every one of the original ones except John, the beloved writing here, went to a painful and shameful death persecuted, hounded, and then murdered because they would never recant this one testimony that Christ had risen from the dead and that they had been with him over a period of 40 days. Nothing could make them, no torture, no torment. Remember, they were a self-professed band of cowards who had run from him while he was alive 
And then, within a few days of his crucifixion and death, would stand in that same city that had put him to death and testify that he had risen and that they'd been with him and that nothing would ever be the same, that he had, in fact, borne our lives within his life, our sin and brokenness within his, and had kicked down death's doors and led captivity captive now to life in him. Now, I don't know what lie could make me be willing to be tormented, tortured, and finally killed in order to preserve a lie. And this story has shown itself through over 2,000 years to be transforming. I remember one time when I pastored a church in New England early in my ministry, and I was on the south shore of Boston. I pastored one of those, in one of those beautiful old colonial towns, and I loved the old historic churches that the Puritan forebears had built. And so I had gone with some friends down to the church in Situate, uh, that is sort of iconic. It's appeared in some movies. And it had become a Unitarian church, did not believe that Jesus was any more than a man or that God had raised him from the dead. And the pastor was showing us around. And we were having a good time until he asked me uh, where I was a pastor. And when I told him, he said, oh, you guys actually believe you know, that Christ is risen. You believe all that stuff. And it just struck me wrong that day and so I said he was a bright fella and I said I would be willing to debate you in any public setting you pick on whether or not Christ is risen from the dead but I will do it only if if you agree to one thing I said I will bring a hundred people ready to testify that the risen Christ has transformed their lives can you bring just 10 people from your ministry who can testify that what you teach has transformed their lives? And he looked like air had been let out of the balloon. He plopped down in a pew and he said, I will never understand why people just have to come to believe that Jesus loves them and died for them and their lives are transformed. The testimony of transformed lives Okay, I'm going to go the rest of the morning on the assumption that this is true. And I want you to note four, to me, exquisitely beautiful themes in these verses that we read about Mary's encounter with Jesus. And the first is obvious. Any one of us who's grown up in church would give intellectual assent to it, but I would contend that it is not our default mode as humans, and even most of us who are teachers and pastors, lapse into a completely unbiblical way of thinking. Here's the first move that this text makes, and it is to me exquisite. Jesus preferred profoundly broken people who knew that they were profoundly broken people. The reason that he was always in trouble with the religious people, with the Presbyterian pastors and elders of his day, was precisely because they wanted him to choose them and sit down and eat with them and talk theology. And instead, he was always looking for the table where the people were who were rejected 
by the religious people and he would go and sit with them. And the religious leaders would say to his disciples, why does your master do this? Why is he sitting with sinners and and losers and people we would never have table fellowship with? And Jesus said, when you see me, you see the Father. I've not come to do my will. I've come to do his will. I and the Father are one. Sometimes kids get the impression in Sunday school that God the Father is so angry and he, he wishes he could just get to him. But Jesus, thank God Jesus is there kind of standing between keeping the Father from hitting them. Sometimes grown-ups feel that way. But Jesus came to reveal the Father. And who is the first person that the resurrected Christ chose to reveal himself to? His two pillar apostles, Peter and John, ran to the tomb, saw that it was empty, but Jesus did not reveal himself to them. We only know two things about Mary Magdalene from the Gospels. One is that she was from the town of Magdala. That's why they called her Mary Magdalene, Mary of Magdala. And we know that Jesus had delivered her from demon possession. We don't know anything about the nature of that. Writers and particularly movie makers have made great hay and usually make her out to have been, you know, sleeping around with everybody in this wild, uh, sometimes totally out. We, we don't have a clue. All we know is that this woman had been in absolute and utter bondage to the enemy of our souls, and Jesus Christ had set her free. And I'm glad we don't know what her particular brokenness was, just as I'm glad that we don't know what Paul's thorn in the flesh was, because we can read those and identify with it whatever our brokenness is. But Jesus had not just delivered her, he had drawn her into the heart of the band of disciples. We know that because there are only four disciples whose names appear repeatedly in the Gospels. Peter, James, John, and Mary Magdalene. Her name is listed. She appears in more scenes than any of the other disciples except for those three. She was central to the story. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he was telling not only Mary something, he was telling us for all time something about the Father's love. He said, I've not come to call the righteous, I've come to call sinners. Well, of course, the reason is all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But when we think that we're the people, we're the righteous, we're the ones that you're lucky to have, God just says, you go on and do your best until you come face to face with your own brokenness. So that's, that's the first move. And I, I love it that he chose first to reveal himself to Mary because he always comes after broken, wounded people like you and me. The second thing is he meets her right where she is. He doesn't give her a program of self-improvement toward the day that he's willing to work with her once she's got her act together. Jesus comes to her, meets her right where she is, 
and then does it to take her deeper. He says to her, why are you weeping? And I can see your heart is broken. Tell me, what's going on? Don't we often think when we realize how badly we've blown it that we haven't loved as we ought, perhaps we've betrayed someone we love deeply or betrayed the Lord or, or done something that we can't believe that we did or at least contemplated doing something. Isn't our default mode to think, I've got to get, I've got to get my stuff together here so that I can go and get right with the Lord. But first, I've got to get my stuff together. I, for almost 30 years, pastored a church right uh, close to the University of Tennessee, and I always knew when it was final exams because we had to set up, you know, three or 400 folding chairs uh, around the room to accommodate all the students that were coming to try to get right with God before exams. Of course, they'd disappear when exams were over, but, you know, the idea was, I'm gonna, I need God's help, and oh, I haven't been to church in a while. I'll go to church and then I'll ask for it. He meets us where we are, in the place of our need. Mary, why are you weeping? And I ask you today, what is it when you wake up at three in the morning that grips you and fills your heart with fear or sadness? Nothing wrong with feeling deep grief. Our Lord Jesus did, he wept at Lazarus' tomb. But are you grieving as those who have no hope or in the midst of the grief, do you know where to take that grief? Do you take it to him and say, you're gonna have to carry this, I can't carry this pain, this hurt, this disappointment, this fear, this anxiety. Please meet me in this place and wipe away my tears. And then he takes her deeper. He says, whom are you seeking? What are you really looking for? Because that's really the question. And so often we will put on, too often on those we love the most, a burden they cannot bear. A husband or a wife will put on their spouse the burden of making them feel good about themselves. The, they want meaning and significance by having a good marriage. Well, your spouse can't carry that burden. You can only put that on the Lord. Whom are you really seeking in your marriage? What intimacy does the intimacy of marriage sacramentally represent? What is it always seeking to point us to? The lover of our souls who wants eternal intimacy and union with us. Or we'll put it on our children. You know, we, we feed them and we clothe them we put up with them, we go to their games, even if we have no interest in that particular sport. I used to pray when my kids were small, please don't let them be great athletes. <laughs> or at least not swimmers. I mean, if you, you know, you sit there in the hot sun, four hours in the afternoon for a 10 second sprint. You're just, I'm sorry, this is Easter. But you know, we invest in them. Well, we expect something back. I want you as I'm old to make my life have meaning. Be the person that I dreamed for you to be. Well, no. We, we turn them loose to the Father. They can't bear the weight of our expectations. Whom are you seeking when your heart is broken? And so he dives down. Really, he's asking, 
what ultimately are you resting your life on? That's your God, whatever it is. Whatever we sing or say on Sunday, whatever I think or whomever I think, I could not lose and my life still have meaning. That's my God. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And then the most beautiful part of this to me is the third move. Look at how Jesus identifies himself to Mary. If I were writing this script, I would have him now step out of the shadows, remove that covering that Jewish men usually wore when they were out, Jewish men and women, and, and say, guess who, you know? <laughs> Look, here I am. It's not what he does. He says her name. He says Mary. And when he calls her by name, she knows that all is well, that Christ is risen, that everything that would come against her has been broken because the Lord of life is there before her and he's called her by name. I remember being a young, proud veteran back in school posing my proud questions to God. I was a philosophy major. I was, you know, asking the hard questions. They're good questions. I still don't know the answers to some of them, and I'm sure read enough, uh, enough books about them. But I'll tell you what transformed my life was when in the midst of a service of worship that I'd kind of been conned into going to in order to go to dinner afterward. Maybe some of you are this morning here for that. And in the midst of it, I realized that he was calling my name. That in the depth of my heart, he was saying, John, are you done running? Everything you're looking for, everything you're longing for is right here. I'll, I'll show my age by professing to be a, a big fan of Bruce Springsteen and his music. And I don't think he's written a more poignantly beautiful, haunting song than Secret Garden. But the reality is, it isn't true. There is no woman, there is no man who has in their secret garden everything you'll ever want and everything you'll ever need. There is only one. And that's the one who called her by name and who would call you by name. Have you yet sensed that call in the midst of your heart? He won't call you by my name nor me by yours. He won't ever tell me your story. He won't tell you mine. But he calls us by name and then says, I now want to come into your story and suddenly show you the meaning of it and show you how all of these things that you thought were lost and broken and, and failures and, and things that could never be set right, I now take and make something beautiful for my Father's glory and for your good. The final move is that he gives her the message. Now go tell my disciples, okay, don't shoot the messenger, 
I know this is a PCA church, but all the church fathers in their comments on this seem to wrestle with embarrassment and yet finally come to admit that indeed the first apostle was a woman because an apostle was one sent with the message that Christ is risen. And Jesus entrusted that message to Mary Magdalene. You, Mary, go and tell my brothers that I'm risen. Of course, we know from later in the story, they didn't believe. It's just a woman, she's emotional, she's overwrought. Until he then appeared to them, why did you not believe? But whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever people think of you or don't think of you, the Lord of life would entrust you with the only message that ultimately matters, the only thing that gives eternal meaning and significance to otherwise stunted and broken lives. And it's that Christ is risen. And how will people know that? By seeing the beginning of a transformation in us. Seeing us begin to learn to love as we wouldn't love if Christ had not loved us. And love people whom we would not love and listen to and respect as people made in God's own image. People so very different from us because that's what he's made us for. Jesus said that night before he died, John 13, by this all men will know that you're mine, by the love that you have for one another. So that's the resurrection call. Go tell, go show my love, my resurrection power. Has he called your name? Have you heeded? Have you listened? Has he begun to work transformation in you? If so, then you and I can say this day with the Apostle Paul, as he said at the end of Romans chapter 8, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Can you say that today? I pray that you can, because Christ is risen. Would you stand? Father, how we thank you for the truth of your gospel, but until your spirit comes and applies it to our hearts, we just won't believe it. We'll keep turning away and we'll look at the empty tomb. We'll wonder what it's all about. But we'll keep going home like Peter and John. Would you this day in this place call our names so that nothing is ever the same? In Jesus' name, amen.